Carl is preaching on Psalm 45 today and um, I thought we might just try something different. I know it might be um, uh, a little out of your comfort zone. Um, immediately after the reading we'll, uh, we'll just uh, break into discussion groups of three, uh, three or four or five people and um, just for a few minutes try to, uh, let's highlight something that, you've, uh, that struck you in this passage that... Um, so that, so that at least we are prepared um, as, we, um, as, as Carl preaches to us that, um, that we might have some involvement in this text. So just keep that in mind. Um, uh, I'll read uh, Psalm 45 and then um, just turn your chair around or whatever you need to do in just small groups. Uh, we don't want them too large because otherwise um, people won't talk. Psalm 45. Hear the word of the Lord. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skilful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendour and majesty. In your majesty ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favour. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her, those brought to be with her. Led in with joy and gladness, they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers and you will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Okay, can I invite you just to have a brief discussion and I'll come back up here uh, to pray. Now there's rubbish on the pulpit this week, but anyway, all right. Hopeless. This sign's not straight. But anyway, all right. Well, it's good. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed that uh, uh, it was good to think through and to uh, uh, notice some things about uh, Psalm 45. 
Uh, it's an interesting psalm, isn't it? So it's uh, maybe a little bit unusual, uh, a little bit strange, a little bit outside our comfort zone. It's, uh, I mean, at one level it seems uh, straightforward. It's this wedding psalm. Uh, but at another level, uh, it's a little bit more complicated as well, I think. I think it would be fair to say, uh, perhaps, that wedding days are maybe the most memorable days in people's lives, the most remembered days. Uh, I was, actually, I was, as I was having breakfast this morning, I was thinking, actually, I, I think I can remember most, with, with pretty, pretty good clarity, most weddings I've ever been to. But, but beyond that, we, we love to remember weddings in other ways, don't we? We, uh, we have photographs. Every uh, house, every, the house of every uh, married couple that you go to, they've always got uh, a wedding photo somewhere around the place, uh, on the wall or uh, you know, on a cupboard or something like that. Uh, and it's often kind of mildly humorous, isn't it, to look at the photos. I'm sure there's some people who think, we should really take that photo down. <laughs> uh, I've been to people's houses sometimes and I've wondered why they have photos of other people's weddings uh, in their house, uh, only to discover that it's them. Uh, and, uh, and I think I've even said, whose photo is that? Uh, so it's interesting, isn't it, uh, to see the photos uh, of people's weddings, but we love to remember a wedding and if there's not a photo on the wall uh, or a photo on a cupboard, there's a photo album stuffed away somewhere, you know, full of, uh, of photos from every possible a- angle, uh, you know, and every possible person uh, in the wedding party. Uh, and I suppose in the days before photos that poetry would be a good substitute for a way of remembering a wedding. Uh, How do you remember a wedding? How do you celebrate a wedding when you don't have photographs to remind you? Well, maybe you write a poem. Uh, Maybe you write a wedding song. And really that's what Psalm 45 is. It's 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 a photograph from the days of Israelite kings celebrating uh, a wedding uh, and, and helping us to remember it uh, and to see uh, this beautiful wedding of a handsome king uh, and a beautiful bride. Now, as I said before, at one level, this psalm is pretty straightforward. Uh, it's, it, it's obviously a wedding song. The title of the psalm says that. Uh, a wedding song, it says in the title. And the first verse uh, tells us what's it, what it's about. The writer says, My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skilful writer. So in one sense that seems fair enough, doesn't it? You know, it's this wedding between the king uh, and his bride. But when you start to read through the psalm, it kind of seems a little bit grandiose. Did you get that feeling? You know, it's a little bit extravagant maybe as you read through. So in verse 2, You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace, since, your, since God, your God, has blessed you forever. Now, there's probably some uh, women here who probably thought on their wedding day that their husband's lips were anointed with grace and that they were the most excellent of men, but, but the words, God has blessed you forever, that, that kind of, maybe that's a little bit excited, isn't it? You know, a little bit over the top. Or verse 5, let the nations fall beneath your feet. Now, that might not seem too overwhelming, uh, but when you get to verse 6, 
the humanness uh, of the king in this psalm begins to unravel. So verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. The, the king is suddenly seems to be called God, addressed as God. As one uh, writer says, the royal compliments suddenly blossom into divine honours. Don't you love that? And then the same person uh, says later on, uh, describes it as Old Testament language bursting its banks. (laughs) I think he was getting a little bit carried away as he was writing about the psalm. But it's true, isn't it? You read this psalm and it starts off off being about this human king and then you get to verse 6 and he's addressed as God. God, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And then as you begin to look at the psalms around Psalm 45, it begins to become even clearer still what's going on. So look back to Psalm 44 verse 4. So Psalm 44 verse 4, You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. So Psalm 44 is about God the king who decrees these victories for his people. Or or look at Psalm 46. The word uh, king isn't used in that psalm but but look at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. So there's this vision of God uh, ruling as king from the city of Jerusalem and then verse 6, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty, or literally, the Lord Yahweh of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Psalm 46 is about God the King. God the King who rules from his city and makes wars cease. Turn to Psalm 47. Verse 1, clap your hands all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. Verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise, the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. What's going on, you see, is not only is Psalm 45 pushing us towards this vision of God the king, but the setting of Psalm 45 within the book of Psalms itself is pushing us to see that this is talking not just about any king, but about God the king. God is the great king who rules over the earth and Psalm 45 is not just about any other king, it's about God the great king marrying God's people. Uh, As uh, Will showed us before, um, God's 
people being God's bride is not a foreign idea in the Old Testament. We might know it from the, from the New Testament, from places like Ephesians 5, but it's, it's, a, it's an idea that's there in the Old Testament. Uh, another example besides Hosea chapter 2 is Ezekiel 16, where God is talking about his relationship with his people. So listen uh, to these words from Ezekiel 16. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. God is taking the image of uh, a husband marrying his wife and he's using that to describe his relationship with his people. You get the same in Hosea uh, and you get the same uh, as you come into the New Testament. Uh, In fact, in the New Testament, the idea of God marrying his people kind of explodes into its fullest meaning where we discover that it's God's son, Jesus, who becomes the husband uh, of God's people, the church. So in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And he goes on to say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And there are already uh, strong hints in Psalm 45 that while the king is God, he's also in some way distinguished from God. Uh, Look again at verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 45. Verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions. So he's not only called God this king, but he's also in some way distinguished from God. God, your God, will set you above your companions. So the king is uh, both identified as God and distinguished from God uh, in those verses 6 and 7. And indeed in, in, in Hebrews chapter 1, those two verses are used to to demonstrate, to prove that Jesus is God's divine son and God's divine king. Well, that's uh, been some hard work, uh, a little bit of kind of jumping all over the Bible and trying to work out what this psalm is about. Uh, But what's the basic idea? What's the point? Uh, What's the, 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 the end result of all that hard work? I think the Uh, end result or the point is that as the Old Testament Israelites uh, read this psalm, they would have understood it as a reflection on God as the great king and his people uh, as his bride. And and for us as we read it, it's the same, but we have that greater understanding of Jesus Christ as the ultimate king and the ultimate husband of his people, the church. Uh, You can can imagine... uh, the original writers, the sons of Korah, maybe uh, that they were 
They'd been invited to the royal wedding uh, and they were there and as they saw this king marrying this woman and as they reflected on God as the great king, you can imagine them sitting there and thinking to themselves, you know, something more significant than this is going on. This isn't just about a king and his bride, but there's a sense in there in which the great king, God, is marrying his people. Uh, you know, uh, last, was it last year? Last year or this year? Uh, Will and Kate, you know, Will, Will and Kate. The, uh, who are they? Prince William and whoever she is. The Duchess or something or other. But, um, you know, they had that, they had that wedding, Right? And it was a wedding full of pomp and ceremony. You know, we love, uh, you know, the pomp and ceremony that British do, don't we? Uh, of course, William wasn't king when he got married, but suppose that he was. And suppose that you were invited uh, to that wedding and you were sitting there and you're looking at this, this glory and this splendour and, uh, you know, they're wearing the ridiculous uh, uni- military uniforms uh, and, you know, the bride comes in and she's got this... Dress, more, you know, dress worth more than any of us could ever, ever afford. Um, and you're sitting there and as you're sitting there you're thinking to yourself, this is, you know, this is a great thing to be a part of, isn't it? But as you're sitting there you think, but you know what, there's a greater king. There's a greater king. God is a king. And then as you begin to sit there, you begin to reflect on what this wedding, this, it's a real thing, it's, it's, it's a real thing that's happening but it becomes to you a picture, doesn't it, of something greater. It becomes to you a picture of the relationship between God and his people. And I think that's what's going on here in uh, Psalm 45, is that the sons of Korah, it started off as a, as a historical psalm about a historical event, but it became a vision of something greater, of our relationship with God. There are some things here that undoubtedly would have blown the minds of some of the Old Testament believers and they probably wouldn't have grasped grasped them in their full significance. But the basic point is for us as we read this psalm is that Jesus Christ is revealed to us not just as our king but as our husband as well, as a husband of his people in the church. Now I think that's a really important thing to grasp it's important to grasp because it brings balance to the idea of God as our king. You see, when, when, over the last few weeks we've been thinking about God's Messiah, God's king in the Old Testament and we've seen that, that God's king is a king of great reversals, that God is a God of great reversals that he brings about through his king. We've seen that, uh, that, that Jesus is the king who leads us back into the presence of God. But when we think about a king, it just seems so far away, doesn't it? You know, the king is over there, the king is ruling up there, the king is far away from us, the king is maybe sometimes a great tyrant who oppresses us. That's what we think of when we think of a king. But if Jesus is not just our king, but our husband, it reshapes it, doesn't it? I don't know if you noticed, we didn't actually read the verse, but a few verses before in Hosea chapter 2, God says, you will, you will no longer call me my master, but you will call me my husband. Do you, do you see the shift? Jesus is not just our king. 
He is a loving husband. He loves us deeply. He's committed to us like a husband is committed to his wife. That doesn't make him any less of a king. But it means that he's not up there. He's not a great tyrant. He's not a great oppressor. No, he loves us deeply. He's, he's the king who holds our hands like a husband holds the wife of his bride. He's the king who enters into the muck and the grime of our lives. He's the king who pours out his life for us because he loves us dearly. This psalm is about the relationship between Jesus and the church. But it's not just about that relationship, it's also a celebration of it. It's a celebration of the king and his bride. So I want to, for the rest of the time this morning, just look at what the psalm celebrates about the king and what the the psalm celebrates about his bride, the church. So what does the psalm celebrate about Jesus? Well, look at verse 2. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. I, uh, I don't know if you've seen the internet storm uh, over the past week or so. Uh, there's a video of uh, Jay-Z. He caught the, uh, the train in, uh, or the tube in uh, whatever they call it, in Brooklyn. Uh, and, he, uh, and he sat next to this uh, woman in her 60s, I think she was, and she didn't realise who he was. And there were all these cameras and all these uh, you know, people around and all this kind of stuff. And they had this conversation. She's like, um, who, who are you? <laughs> are you famous? You know, there's all these cameras and everything there. And then she found out uh, who, who he was. And this video has gone viral of this, this poor innocent woman. But she was quoted uh, later as saying to the media that she was really impressed by her meeting with this, uh, this famous rapper. He seemed quite humble. He seemed to be quite interested uh, in who she was. Uh, and she said she'd been energised by their encounter. Uh, she was quoted as saying, it was just such a wonderful conversation. He's very real. He didn't seem disturbed. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, that was more, was more of a sentence there. He didn't seem disturbed that I didn't understand who he was. He's not full of himself. But, you know, we, we can meet the most fabulous person, can't we? You know, we can meet people and, and we're energised by them. You know, we meet people who, who we might describe as the most excellent of men. I had this uh, friend who I studied with at Bible College and he was just the most amazingly helpful person you could ever imagine. Uh, you know, when nobody else was washing up the dishes after church, he'd be there. Uh, I remember we visited this church once. We'd never been there before in our lives and they had to pack up afterwards and everyone from the church had sort of gone off and do, And my friend was there lugging the, ta- <laughs> the tables from one room to the other. Uh, you know, he was just so wonderfully generous. Think of the most wonderful person that you've ever met or ever known and this psalm is saying, Jesus is more excellent than that. Think of all the wonderful qualities in all the wonderful people that you know and love. Well, Jesus is even better than that. He's better by far. His lips 
drip with gracious words. I used to know a, a guy in another church. Uh, he was an incredibly successful man. Uh, he was at the top of his field. He was a professor. Uh, he'd been a professor at Cambridge University. He was extremely uh, reputable. But every time he shook your hand and said hello, it would almost bring you to tears. He was incredible. You'd almost look forward to meeting him at church every week or at the prayer meeting. His words were so rich and so warm. And this psalm is saying that Jesus' words are just like that. Imagine that. Words that drip with grace, which ooze with kindness and love. But Jesus' words aren't just gracious words, they're also powerful words, aren't they? Jesus' words are powerful to create a universe and bring a universe to nothing, to build up and to take away. He is blessed by God forever, the psalm says. That's no small thing in itself. Uh, We uh, fear, I think, that though we might be blessed by God today, we fear that we might not be blessed by God tomorrow. We fear that our sin and our waywardness might take God's blessing away from us. But this psalm says that Jesus is blessed forever. It never ends. No blessing is ever taken away from him. And if we belong to him, if we're like his bride, then Jesus' eternal blessing from God means our eternal blessing from God. Nothing can ever take it away. Not because we're special, but because he's special. And we belong to him. What else is he like? He's mighty. He's clothed in splendour and majesty. He rides forth victoriously. His hands work awesome deeds. His enemies fall at his feet. It's hard for us to come to terms with the idea that we could admire someone for their military victory. It almost seems uh, a bit disturbing actually, doesn't it? But you only have to look through the pages of history to see how much people in time of war have loved the great heroes who have delivered them. Uh, You might think of uh, General Montgomery in the Second World War. Uh, His victory over Rommel at El Alamein made him a hero. It made him a, a national hero. Uh, or, or not even individuals. You might think of uh, the, uh, the, the many crews of, of yachts and ordinary boats who sailed uh, to the French coast to bring home the, the, the sailors when they were retreating from the German army uh, at the beginning of the war. That, those people were idolised by the whole nation of Britain. They were heroes. Or think of Winston Churchill Uh, When he died in 1965, the outpouring of grief as a nation was almost unparalleled, I think, for a political figure. And they weren't distraught because he'd passed great tax reform legislation, you know, or, uh, you know, or because he'd improved uh, the welfare situation in Great Britain. That wasn't it. They loved him because he'd won them the war. He delivered them from the evil of Nazi oppression. How much more should we love Jesus who's delivered us 
from Satan and from death and from sin. He rides forth victoriously and his hands have worked awesome deeds. He defends truth, humility and righteousness. His throne lasts forever. His reign is just. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. Our world is full of rulers. There's no shortage of people who want to put up their hand to be uh, a political leader or uh, a president or a prime minister. But there is a shortage of people in our world who are honest rulers. I don't know if you've been following what's been happening in New South Wales uh, politics and the uh, investigation, the corruption investigation over Eddie O'Bees and basically the entire New South Wales Labor uh, Party uh, during their last term in government. But our politics seems to be infested with people who play fast and loose with the truth rather than to people who hold fast to the truth. Our, uh, our politics seems to be infested with people who, who know a great deal about bitterness and division and abuse and assault but know almost nothing about humility and kindness. Our politics seems to be full of people who love wickedness and hate righteousness. But Jesus is perfect in truth. With Jesus, truth always wins over lies, humility always triumphs over pride and righteousness is always exalted over godlessness. And not just for a moment, you know, not just for a four-year term. We live in this constant uncertainty, don't we? You might get a good government, but they might be tossed out at the next election. It's also a relief, isn't it, when you have a bad government and you think, well, maybe they'll be tossed out at the next election and then they're returned. But Jesus' reign isn't like that, is it? It's a perfect reign and it's a perfect reign which lasts forever and ever. The sun will never set on his reign or his kingdom. Psalm 45, you see, helps us to celebrate and to love Jesus. It helps us to see that Jesus isn't just powerful, he's also beautiful and lovely and attractive. Look at verse 8. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, from palaces to palaces, adorned with ivory, the music of strings makes you glad. You know, you might uh, trust Christ, you might know who he is, you might know the doctrines of the Bible, you might know about justification and all those big uh, words like that and sanctification and glorification and whatever else it is. But if you don't delight in Jesus, if you don't love him, if your heart isn't stirred by a noble theme, if your tongue doesn't rejoice in telling about the great things, the great person that Jesus is, then that's just a hollow Christianity, isn't it? No, this psalm helps us to meditate on the excellence of Christ. If that's you, if you find you have this, this small view of Christ, then start with Psalm 45. You know, Pray through this psalm. Meditate on this psalm. Do what this psalm does and, and meditate on the world. And as John Piper says, 
transpose it into a higher key. Look at the weddings and enjoy them and think to yourself, but isn't it greater, our relationship with God? Meditate on the beauty of Christ and pray that God would open your eyes to love Christ. So this psalm celebrates Christ. It celebrates a lot of things about Christ, but it also celebrates the bride. It also celebrates uh, the bride in verse 10 when it says, Listen, O daughter, and consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favour. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and are brought to you. They are led in with joy and gladness. They enter the palace of the king. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? You know, it conjures up in your mind all the great weddings that you might have ever been to. Uh, <laughs> I remember there's this, I had this great photo that a friend of mine had. Uh, they, were at a, they were being married at a church and the bride was coming in uh, and it was one of those churches with a balcony at the back, you know, with the, the kind of the loft section. And they didn't know that she was there yet. So all these people are sitting in the top of this balcony kind of <laughs> looking horribly bored. And all the people down the bottom who can see the bride entering the church are all like, oh, wow, isn't this great? This is really exciting. This amazing contrast. But this psalm gives us, doesn't it, this great picture of the bride, uh, of the bride entering to marry her husband. It's a wonderful picture, but it's also a confronting picture. It's a confronting picture because the bride is not just us, but the bride is the church. You see, the, 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 the beauty being celebrated here is the beauty of the church of God. Our instinct, I think, is to read this psalm and to think, isn't this fantastic? Jesus is here, here is captivated by my beauty, by my wonderfulness. You know, it's, it's me, I'm in the... Well, this is a bit weird. It's me in the gown, you know, <laughs> embroidered with gold. You know, but isn't that how we think? We think that the, th- the thing that captivates Christ is our beauty, but that's not right. The thing that captivates Christ here is the beauty of the church. It's doubly confronting because it challenges not only our individualism but it also challenges our view of the church. Really? Is Jesus really enthralled by the church? Is the church really glorious within her chamber? Is that how you would describe the church of God? The church is dressed in a gown, embroidered and interwoven with gold. You might wonder if Psalm 45 is talking about the same church that we know. I guess there's a few things to say. Uh, The first is to say that not everybody who sits in a pew or says, I belong to a church, is part of the church of God. The people who belong to the church of God are the people who trust in Christ and who love Christ. But even if you narrow down the church by saying that, there's still a lot of mess left in the church, isn't there? There's still a lot of ugliness. There's still a lot of problems. I think the second thing to say then is to point out that 
In the Bible, the wedding, which is being celebrated in Psalm 45, between Jesus and his bride, is always a future event. It's always something yet to come. So 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. He's looking ahead to a day when the church will be presented to Christ. Or Revelation 21, it pictures the church as the new Jerusalem, as a bride prepared beautifully dressed for her husband. Or Ephesians 5, it talks about Christ presenting the church to himself one day without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. So the wedding which is being celebrated in Psalm 45 is in some sense a future reality. And yet Ephesians uh, Ephesians 5 also talks about Christ already having given himself up for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word. You see, Jesus has already entered into relationship with us. He's already entered into relationship with the church. The church is set apart. The church is holy. The church is justified. Uh, It's like, uh, if you want, it's like we're engaged to Christ. Uh, We're still waiting for the wedding day. But the church is, at the moment, even though it's not perfect, it's still holy. It's still set apart. It's still justified. I remember uh, hearing the comment once uh, by someone uh, that we so readily apply the doctrine of justification to ourselves. We so readily say, uh, I am a uh, sinner, though I'm still justified. I'm still right with God. Uh, but we, we struggle to apply the doctrine of justification to the church. That is, the church is justified, but full of sinners. You see, we so readily accept that truth about ourselves, imperfect but right with God, but struggle so much to apply that to everybody else. Imperfect but right with God. See, Psalm 45 challenges us to have a different view of the church. It challenges us to have Jesus' view of the church. What do we see when we look at the church? We see imperfection. We see the people who never talk to us, who never ask us how we're going. We see the people who are flawed, who are lazy, who are indifferent. What does Jesus see when he looks at the church? Jesus sees a bride being prepared for her wedding day. Jesus sees a group of people sanctified by his blood, set apart by his death on the cross being transformed and changed every day more and more so that one day it will be true to say that the church is really a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What will it be like on the last day? It will be like a wedding day. Christ robed in glorious splendour enraptured by his church and by his people and the church dressed for Jesus Christ, dressed in righteousness and holiness 
and love and compassion and kindness. Like a gown embroidered with gold and the finest silk. What will it be like? It will be a great day because Jesus' love for us will be full and our love for Jesus will be eternally full and complete. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's hard to imagine uh, what that day will be like. Father, it's so hard to imagine because when we look at ourselves and when we look at your church, we so easily see the faults and the mess and the muck and the dirt and the grime. We so easily see the incompetence and the godlessness And yet, Lord, as we think about all the weddings that we've ever been to, we begin to get a sense of what it might be like. A day when everybody's dressed up in splendour. A day when the ordinary becomes extraordinary. In a day when love seems powerful to overcome the tragedies of life. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to glimpse that more fully every day and to live in eager expectation for the day when we'll meet our loving husband and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.